Fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. dream my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character I have a dream today uh, historically speaking probably all of those uh, speeches are familiar to you and depending on your age uh, you probably uh, maybe there's folks here that that have witnessed uh, all but the first one. Uh, you may be wondering how we got Lincoln to come and, and uh, do that little clip for us. Uh, it was a little bit extra work, but we pulled that one off. Uh, but all of those speeches are, are defining moments. Uh, they're not just defining moments for those individuals. Hi, Jeff and Becky. I just saw you. It's so good to see you from in from out of town. I, I apologize. I just saw some dear friends I haven't seen in a while. Um, all of those oh, speeches... Uh, not only to find the individual who was speaking, but perhaps an entire civilization or an entire nation uh, or, or a point in human history that is absolutely crucial. Winston Churchill uh, was, was used to defend uh, the Western democracies in, in ways that were absolutely mind-blowing as the Second World War broke out. Martin Luther King Jr. sought to, to heal the wounds, the racial wounds of an entire nation. Those Speeches are, are microcosms of defining moments. The study that we're in this fall is a study on following Jesus. What does it mean for you and me to actively not just put our faith in him, but to follow him? Uh, what we're going to do this Sunday and next is we're going to look at a defining moment in the life of Jesus. We're going to look at a defining teaching in the life of Jesus. At least we're going to look at part of it. Uh, whether believer or unbelieving skeptic, uh, scholars would agree that the Sermon on the Mount is a moment that really encapsulates Jesus' teaching. This is an outline of Jesus' vision for his disciples and the mission to which he calls them. Uh, within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, which is what we're going to look at this Sunday and next Sunday, really are the foundation. They are in a sense, the manifesto uh, for discipleship. Uh, I want to remind us that our goal in this fall study is to embrace the verse that Luke writes in chapter 6 and own it for ourselves and to try to move in this direction. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. What would it mean for you and for me? What would it mean for the people around us? 
What would it mean for this community, for the greater St. Louis area, if every person that attended Green Tree Community Church this morning and all three of our services this next week were all more like Jesus than they were last week? I would suggest that the impact on our own lives individually as well as our community would be profound. So how do we grow in this faith? Well, thinking about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, John Stott, who's a very famous theologian, wrote the following words. To follow Jesus demands a totally different way of life, and it is vital for the people of God. Right at the outset of his ministry, Jesus lays it on the line. A new age has dawned. The sermon shows what life is like after repentance and commitment to the king. In a word, life is different. A sharp contrast is constantly being drawn between the standards of Jesus and those of all others. Here we meet a distinctive lifestyle with radically different values and ambitions. Everything is at a variance with life outside the kingdom. Now, as I read those words, I long for those words to be true about my life, but I can promise you they're partially true. <laughs> I would love to be that devoted to the cause of Christ. I would be, I'd love to be that devoted to my Lord Jesus and my relationship with him, but I have a ways to go. I have growing to do. And my suspicion is that if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, you would love to embrace that as your manifesto, that that would be true of your life, but perhaps you have some more growing to do as well. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, hear the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, that's he being Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, the speeches that we heard, the, 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 the small bits of them, uh, stir something significant in our hearts. They call us to something greater than ourselves. We think of the sacrifice that actually stood behind some of those words. We think of the people who, uh, who lived out uh, the call that Roosevelt issued for people to come and defend this country and how many people sacrificed their lives, their livelihoods in order to protect the freedom that we enjoy this morning. Father, as we come to this teaching of Jesus, it stirs our hearts. It causes us to look deeper. It causes us to ask the harder questions, not out of fear and not out of anxiety, but out of a longing to follow our Lord. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to look at his word this morning, at his calling, <clears throat> at, at how he defines a disciple's characteristics. Lord, we pray that you would not just stir our emotions, but that you would uh, cause our minds to dig deeply into your truth and that you would rattle the cages of, uh, of our lives, of our comfort, of our love of our comfort, our love of being in control of our own lives, and that you would see us a more, show us a more beautiful and passionate way. 
Father, I am not capable of bringing any of this truth to bear on anyone's life. So we pray that you would protect us against my uh, fallacy, that you would forgive my sin, that you wouldn't let me stand in the way of what you want us to teach this morning. And Holy Spirit, that you would, would be the one who opens our hearts and our minds to God's will, which is perfect and glorious. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about following Jesus. That's where we are this fall. And this morning we want to consider this. Following Jesus brings a spiritual stability to you if you're a disciple of Jesus and you abide in a transforming relationship with him. Jesus wants to change your heart. The work of Jesus' word and the work of Jesus' Holy Spirit is intended to change my heart, to transform me from who I am to who God has called me to be, which is one who is like the teacher. Uh, If that's your creed this morning, if that's your heart's desire, then these words are for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, perhaps you'll get a little bit of insight as to what uh, Jesus is challenging his people with and calling us to as we follow him. And you can consider whether or not you want to join in. The Beatitudes, and we're going to look at four of them this morning and four of them next week, uh, are Jesus' definition of the characteristics that ought to be in your life and ought to be in my life. So with that in mind, let's jump in and look at these first four this morning. Jesus begins in verse 3 by talking about a spiritual humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Does it mean you don't have any resources available to you? If you think about just what the word poor means or poverty, typically it means that you're, you're kind of you know, not able to do for yourself as well as other folks can do, and you're, you're at a disadvantage. Is Jesus calling us to be at a spiritual disadvantage this morning? Far from it. What Jesus is calling us to is a trust in the riches of God instead of trusting in our own false a sense of self-security. I'm going to trust in God above all else if I'm going to have spiritual humility in my life. I'm going to trust him above my own wisdom. I'm going to trust him above my own strength, my own, my own uh, talents to, to take care of myself. I certainly need to trust him above my own opinions about him and about this world. Why is spiritual humility so important? Why is it so essential for you and I to be poor in spirit? To that be the first characteristic that marks our relationship with Christ and, quite frankly, all the rest of our lives? Well, I think it's important because there are two things that are true. The first thing that's true is that every one of us, at some point or another, is going to be overwhelmed with the struggles of life. Uh, The first time I felt overwhelmed with the struggles of life, I was in kindergarten. I was five years old. And I think I've told this story before in years past. It was around Christmas time, and we were cutting out the little white piece of paper. We folded up, right? You open up, and you have a what? You have a snowflake. I opened mine up, and it was still even on all the edges. It literally it didn't even look as good as a piece of Swiss cheese. It just looked awful. And we're going around the room, and the teacher's asking everybody, now hold up your snowflake. And she came to me and said, Tom, hold up your snowflake. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> And she said, oh, really, hold your stuff up. And I held it up. And I, I, I promise you this is the truth. I am not making this up. She said, that's the ugliest snowflake I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> See, now it doesn't matter what else I say. You're going to feel sorry for me the rest of the sermon. Right? I felt a pain in my heart that I can't even begin to describe to you. We all have been in a place where we've been over. Somebody's hurt us or circumstances have gotten the better of us. 
Something's gotten away from us, whether it's our kids or our parents or our job or our friends in school. or Something's gone terribly wrong. It happens to all of us. We're going to be overwhelmed with the struggles of life. And the other thing that's true is when that happens, we tend to put our confidence in the wrong place. We tend to think, I just got to work a little harder. I just, you know, I got, I got to go home and have my older sister, who's very artistic, show me how to cut out a snowflake and come back and prove my teacher wrong. I can do this. That's how we tend to think. That's where we tend to go. And what Jesus is saying is stop thinking that way. Stop putting confidence in the place where it doesn't help you. I did a, I did a, a Google search this week on, on uh, self-help books. And it was unbelievable, the number of self-help books that are out there. And I'm sure there's some good stuff in some of them, but every title basically was look inward because you can find the strength inside of you. The, the, my favorite title was Awakening the Giant Within. <laughs> That's what I want to do. I want to awaken the giant within. I told that to Cindy. She said it, it, might, it might be a, a, you know, a, a smaller person, maybe not a giant. And... Uh, <laughs> And I said, well, that's, that's, that's true, because it's biblical, because I'm not a giant. I'm a giant sinner. I'm in need of God's grace. I'm in need of God's power, and I'm constantly putting my confidence in the wrong place. It's true that I'm overwhelmed. It's true that I put my confidence in the wrong place. So Jesus corrects that. He says, how about being poor in spirit? How about living out this truth? I can't do it. Nobody else can either, but God can do it. In Psalm 57, I'm not going to put the passage on the board, but David says this. He's, he's talking about his life, and he says, there are people out there that want to trample me. I live in the midst of lions. They're, they're fiery beasts. They're, they're spears and arrows and sharp swords. Uh, there's a net set out for my steps. Uh, my enemies have dug a pit and put it in my way. David acknowledges the fact that these crises are going to come. People say the Bible's out of touch with reality. haven't read the Bible. The Bible's the most realistic book there is in the world. And, and David in, in, uh, in Psalm 57 confronts head on the fact that life can go terribly wrong. What do you do with that? Well, what does David go on to write? You, O oh God, are the one in whom my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I find safety. I cry out to, the God, to God most high, and he will send from heaven, and he will save me. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people, and sing your praises among the nations. What David doing there is being spiritually humble. He's understanding that there are trials in his life. And David had, had awful trials. They had people trying to kill him. And he, and he understood that, that, that life doesn't ignore those trials or, or erase those trials. But they come right at him. But he's going to face them head on in God's strength and in God's power. Are you and I practicing spiritual humility this morning? Are we coming before the Lord and putting our trust in him and not in ourselves? Secondly, in this manifesto of discipleship jesus not only calls us to a spiritual humility but he calls us to grieving over our sin and its outcomes look at verse four blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted now jesus is talking about a specific kind of mourning here he's talking about grieving over the human condition which is a sinful condition or a sin-filled condition your heart, your mind, my heart, my heart and mine are broken by sin. I think the wrong way. I feel the wrong way. I act the wrong way. I treat people the wrong way. Not 100% of the time. I don't always get it wrong. But there are a lot of times when I break things by the way in which I react or the way in which I speak. I break relationships. I hurt other folks. That's, that separates me from God. That's called sin. And, and Jesus is calling 
his disciples to take an honest look at the depth of their sin. Because if they do, the outcome will be that they're grieved. The outcome will be that they mourn. I read an article this week by Thomas Terrence. Thomas Terrence is a, uh, is a man who once belonged to the Ku Klux Klan. And he has written a book called Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love, How a Violent Klansman Became a Champion of Racial Reconciliation. I would uh, strongly recommend this book to everyone, which is why I put his picture and put the picture of the book cover on the screen this morning. Listen to what Terrence says about grieving over his sin. But as I read the Gospels in my prison cell, my eyes were opened in a way that went beyond simply understanding the words on the page. As the true meaning of God's word became clear, so did its relevance in my life. I'd been blind to spiritual reality all my life and was now beginning to see. As this process unfolded, my sins came to mind, one after another. Conviction grew, and with it, tears of repentance, I needed God's forgiveness. Is that my understanding of my sin this morning? Now, uh, my reaction to that, that quote could be this. Well, that guy was a homegrown terrorist. He, he hated and, and, he, and he was in prison because he tried to blow a bunch of people up with bombs. Not one bomb, with a whole bunch of bombs. That's why he went to prison. He was trying to kill a bunch of people. One, of my, one reaction could be, well, that's not me. I've never tried to blow anybody up, and I'm not that bad a person. I would never do that. And, 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 in, and in looking at his sin is worse than yours, you discount your sin, or you automatically feel better about yourself. If that's where you end up, let me as kindly but as frankly as I possibly can warn you that you are in a terrible place spiritually, that your soul is in jeopardy. If you believe that your sin, no matter how great or small, has not offended a holy God and has not hurt the people around you, you're not dealing in the reality of the situation. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to see your sin for what it is. It's the thing that is killing you, and it's the thing that brings harm to others. We cannot, we will never get to grace defending ourselves, shifting the blame for our words and thoughts and actions onto others ignoring what's true about us or making excuses. I wouldn't have done that if he or she hadn't done this. Jesus actually gives you a safe place to grieve over your sins because he's going to forgive you if you confess those to him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You're not comforted by your sin if somebody says, well, that's too bad, I hope it works out for you. You're not covered by your sin if somebody looks at you after you confess your sin and go, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. I don't want to have anything else to do with you. Jesus doesn't do either of those two things. You're comforted by the fact, and I'm comforted by the fact, that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. But Jesus says we can't be in a relationship without that true understanding of our own sin. Because that honest look at my sin drives me to the cross, to the only true comfort there is. One of my favorite Bible verses is Psalm 30, verse 11. The psalmist says, you've turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Notice the progression there. 
The psalmist doesn't say, boy, I'm happy all the time. Thanks for creating a wonderful place where I can just jump up and down and, and have no worries in my life at all. The psalmist says, I was in a terrible place. I was in an awful predicament. I was looking at my sin. I was looking at, at the evil in my life. And if you want to know whether David was honest about his own sin, go read Psalm 51. David is brutally honest about his own sin. He said, I was a sinner before I came out of the womb. Think about that for a minute. We look at these little babies. Oh, aren't they beautiful, innocent little baby? David says, not a chance in the world. I, I, I was conceived in sin. I, I was a sinner before I got here. He, he confesses a sin in a deep and abiding way, but then he realizes what God's grace does for him. And what does he do? He wants to stand up and dance. He wants to stand up, get up on the table and, and dance a jig. That's the emotional transaction that takes place when we grieve over our sin. Thirdly, not only is there a spiritual humility and a grieving over sin and its outcomes, but Jesus also wants his disciples to understand where their true power really lies. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness can be misunderstood, and I, I would say is misunderstood by a lot of people. Most people, I said, okay, everybody that wants to be meek this morning, if, if you didn't have, it's in the Bible, so I'm supposed to stand up. But if we didn't have any of that, I said, if you want to be meek, stand up. Probably a lot of us say, mm, yeah, I'm not so sure. I want that because we think it's maybe kind of weak or it's kind of noncommittal, or maybe if you're meek, you don't have much backbone, you can't, can't make a hard decision, but that's not the definition of meekness. The de definition of meekness is understanding where the true power lies and, and getting together with that power. One theologian put it this way, meekness means this, that I'm so small in my own eyes that God has room to work for great change. I think that's a, a great statement. Let me read that again. Meekness means I'm so small in my own eyes, God has room to work great change. Meekness does not mean that I'm disinterested. Meekness does not mean that I've thrown up my, my hands and I'm hopeless and, and I, I don't really see a chance for, for change or transformation. Meekness is having confidence in God and in God alone as my strength. Uh, Psalm 37, I'm going back to the Psalms a lot this morning, but Psalm 37, and I've, Psalm 37 is a lot longer than this. I've just kind of boiled it down and hit the high points. But look at these words, trust in the Lord. There, there's that meekness. I'm going to trust in his power. And what? And do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. He will act. Be still before the Lord. Fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Look at the verses, those verses carefully. Trust in the Lord and what? Get up and get going. You don't sit idly by. You're not, you're not wishy-washy. You're not unable to make a decision. We say, follow the Lord, trust in the Lord, and get going. We, we've introduced, reintroduced Boone this morning. Do you really think that Tom Ricks and Sean Boone can make a difference in Ferguson, Missouri? I mean, really, let's be honest about it. Do you think there are two guys who have only known each other for three years are going to go into a community uh, that's, that's racially diverse and, and very, very different than anything that I've ever experienced and, and that I'm going to be able to work with Boone and we as a church are going to support him and that actually lives are going to be changed on our power. Do you really think those two guys can do that? Now, those are a couple of good-looking guys, okay? I mean, they, they, those are strong, right? But there's no way in the world. There's no way in the world that spiritual transformation 
can take place through the power of Sean Boone and Tom Ricks. It just isn't going to happen. But in Christ, we can do all things. In Christ, a church in Kirkwood, Missouri, can plant a church in Ferguson, Missouri, that looks radically different than this congregation, for the glory of God, and see people come to Christ, and to see real social issues addressed, and see the world change. That is actually possible if we go forward in the meekness in which Christ intends. All those, thank you, all those children downstairs in the, in the, in the Sunday school classrooms, you think, that, you think you can change a third grader's mind? I had three third graders. It is not possible. There's no way you can change a third grader's mind unless the power of God is moving and is working. And then even at that age, they can commit themselves to Christ and be a witness in their third grade classroom in their school. Brothers and sisters, this is not a call to inaction. This is not a call to be indecisive and waiting around for God to do whatever God's going to do. It's a call to bravery. It's a call to confidence. It's a call to action, but in Christ's power, not ours. Jesus has great things in store for his people if we trust in him and understand the true source of our power. And then fourth and final observation in these first Beatitudes this morning is Jesus is defining the characteristic of a disciple as a person who has a wholehearted passion for genuine goodness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Anytime you read in the Bible uh, this notion of goodness or righteousness, you need to understand the order in which Scripture lays this out. When, when Scripture talks about right standing, be, being right, it always first and foremost is going this way. It's between me and God, right? So I need to be made, may be made right with my God. And that's what the cross is all about. That's why the cross is there every Sunday morning, because that's what makes us right. Jesus' gift on the cross, in my place, he was my substitute. He suffered and died and took the penalty for my sins so that I could be made right with God. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So now we got this straight. Now God's taking care of that. What happens when God takes care of that? That begins to spill out of my life. It's like, it's like pouring too much coffee in the coffee cup. It just keeps overflowing, and it gets into everything all around it. In other words, my right relationship with God is always intended to go this way. It's never intended to stop here. It's intended to go out here and to impact my relationship with you and your relationship with me. God's righteousness spills over into every human relationship. Becoming like Jesus, therefore, means that we pray that prayer along with him as we hunger and thirst for God's goodness to be displayed in this planet. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to take you back to Terrence for just a second and listen to his progression in faith as a new believer. The next morning, I awoke with a deep hunger for scripture and a desire to pray and to live for God. As I read the Bible daily, a whole new world opened up to me. I couldn't get enough. Early on, God delivered me from hate. I began to grow in my love for others. Friendships developed with black inmates and others who were very different from me, including the FBI agent who orchestrated my initial capture, as well as the Jewish lawyer who helped him. I love that quote. The people that I would naturally hate. Who are the people that you would naturally hate? Come on, be honest. You don't have to call it out. But you know you hate some people. 
You, ha- you just do. That's the human condition. There, there are people that I hate. There are people I cannot abide, and it's not limited to the Chicago Cubs. Okay? <laughs> I need to break the, I, you all were getting a little tense on me there. So I need, but now let's come back for a second. You, it's true. But in Christ, what happens is that's broken down and it's turned into love. It's, it's, it's reversed. And all of a sudden you can't help loving people because you're seeing Christ in them. You're seeing the potential for goodness. You're seeing the opportunity for them to be right with God so that this just grows more and more and more. The question before the house this morning is, are we going to give lip service to this goodness or are we actually going to live in it? Do we really care about our community or not? And I don't just mean Kirkwood. I mean Kirkwood and St. Louis and beyond, the community of the human race. Do we understand that individually we must grow in this goodness that God provides for us in order for us collectively to have a genuine passion for God's goodness to reach this world, to control and drive our lives and the vision of this congregation there's a, t- there's a term that we throw around at Green Tree, and, it's, and, and we throw it around because we're still trying to figure out exactly what it means. It's called biblical justice and mercy. And that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. We, we're studying Scripture to, to seek to determine that. Why? Because we want to know how to bring God's genuine goodness to every human relationship in our sphere of influence. Are we going to apply our faith to tough community issues? We're going to strive to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we do, it will be because God is creating more and more within us this desire, this passion for God's goodness to permeate this world. How do we apply this passage this morning? How do we, how do we kind of take it from this room out there as we live our lives? First and foremost, let me remind us that the call is to be like our teacher. Let's go back to our theme verse for the series. What are we after here? We're not after being a whole bunch of good people that everybody look at. Go, oh, those green tree people are really wonderful. No, we're seeking to become more and more like the teacher. That begins individually. It doesn't begin with me elbowing my spouse and telling him or her that they need to pay attention to the sermon. It starts with me buying a mirror and looking at it and see what's looking back at me. Is there somebody looking back at me that's spiritually humble? If not, what am I going to do about that? How am I going to pray about that? How am I going to bring that before the Lord? How am I going to invite others into my life to speak to me about those things? Does the person who's looking back at me grieve over their sin and mourn the outcomes when it hurts other people? Does the person that's looking back at me understand that their true power is not to pull themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps, but to trust more and more and lean more and more into the goodness and the power and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Does the person looking back at me desire a genuine goodness for every person with whom I come into contact? Let me suggest this week that you do two things. The first is embrace your identity in Christ. Look at this quote-unquote manifesto, look at these four characteristics and rejoice in what God is offering and maybe just pick one. Maybe just look at one and say, you know what, that, as much as, I, as I'd like to, to, to admit, I don't really grieve over my sin. And pray about that one and invite a friend, invite a spouse, invite, invite one of your children. If you don't grieve over your sin, it affects your children. Ask them to pray for you. They'll probably gladly pray for you about that sin. But, but invite someone into that process with you. But, but look at it for what it is. Embrace your identity in Christ and seek to grow in one of these. And then pray that same prayer for all of Green Tree Community Church. 
Do we really want to follow Jesus? Do we really want to be like the teacher? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bless your name because you love people like us. Lord, we, we'd like to just defend our sin and explain why it's not that bad and uh, hope it goes away. Lord, we struggle with humility. We struggle with acknowledging that we need a power outside of ourselves to save ourselves. Lord, we, we like some of the things about goodness, but we, we certainly don't necessarily live to the fullest extent we can to see that goodness come to bear in our community. So, Father, we are a people this morning, every one of us, or the pastor and everybody in this room, we stand in need of your grace and your forgiveness. But we receive it joyfully because of what Christ has done. And we ask that this week you would help us examine our hearts in these four areas, or maybe just one of them in particular, and that you would move in our lives to grow us more and more like the Lord Jesus, and that you would lead this congregation to be a congregation that seeks after your goodness in all walks of life, in every human relationship, for the glory of Jesus and for the growth of his kingdom. We pray in his name. Amen.